0: All right, well, let's take our Bibles together and um, turn to Genesis chapter 15. It's where we are in our journey through the book of Genesis, slowly making our way. Uh, We're just going to deal with six verses this morning. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Using the church Bible, you're going to find that on page 10. Page 10. All right. All right. You found it by now. Let's give our attention to the Word of God as it is read. This is God speaking through the voice of a mere man, yes, but it is the Word of God. After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look, toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. As we ask for the Lord's help. Father, because you have spoken, we must listen. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. It is living and active. That's no less true of what we just read. Father, this task of preaching is one you assign to men, mere men. Something divine needs to happen here that I can't accomplish. So we ask that your spirit would have complete freedom among us this morning. Plant in our hearts this true word. Lord, may people hear your voice above mine and ask for your help, Lord, that I wouldn't get in the way. And Lord, that you would give us all attentiveness and readiness to to apply and to delight in what you have spoken. So, we worship you, Father, by listening to you. Help us for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, I've said before, I watch and read a lot of news. Most of it, if you're with me and <laughs> being aware of what's going on, most of it isn't very encouraging. Uh, the, uh, the occasional story of a Olympic triumph gets buried under stories of... COVID Delta variants and political division, racial discrimination, government corruption. You know, if you take in too much of it, it kind of gets discouraging, even depressing. But as God's people, we are recipients of the best news ever. And it's right here in this passage that we just read today. So if you want good news, You've come to the right place. We're all about good news here. Now, good news for Abram, as we read from this text, was also good news for the Israelites. The Israelites hearing this as they were about to cross the Jordan River and take possession of the land of Canaan. They needed these stories as a reminder of where they came from. They needed these stories. They needed to understand their heritage. Good news for Abram. Good news for Israelites, but it's also good news for us as Christians today. So my aim this morning is just for us to set aside the the grim, the depressing, the annoying, the confusing things out in the world and just anchor ourselves afresh in the good news, the gospel. That's what we're going to focus on here. So the good news that we're going to be talking about this morning, it rests on three important facts that we can see in our Bible text, and I'll give them to you up front. The first important fact. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. The second important fact, Abram is destitute. The third and glorious truth here, faith is justifying. Lord is gracious, Abram is destitute, and faith is justifying. And we're going to see how that applies to us as well. Not just Abram. First, the Lord is gracious. Now, i I've, I've been being reacquainted with how all of this works, having grandchildren now, but I'm, I'm observing this with, with delight. Children learn to speak by imitation. My granddaughter, Nora, when she needs help, she says, help you, help you. And I know why she does it, because what she hears is, can I help you? And uh, this happened in, in our house, so we saw this happening before our eyes. My son Adam corrects her, no, it's help me, help me. She says, help you, help you. And finally she says, help me, help me. Right? Parents don't truly expect their infant children to help them, right, in any meaningful way. And, and there isn't a single loving parent who resents this. These little ones, they come into the world utterly dependent, counting on mom and dad to give sacrificially, out of love, expecting no payment at all. Nothing. We get that as parents. What parents are to their children, gracious, is how God, in a much greater way, in an infinite way, how he is towards his own. God is gracious. Now, Abram, in our text, we find, here's the voice of the Lord. And what's the first thing that Abram needs to understand? Well, it's God is the one doing the giving. Look at verse 1. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So we can see three ways just in the, the idea of God's grace towards Abram that he expresses that. First, God is gracious to Abram to give comfort. Comfort. He says, fear not, Abram. Now, of course, we have to stop here and say, well, why might Abram be fearful? I think, now this is a vision, a dream that Abram has, but as I thought about it, thought, well, if you're hearing the voice of Almighty God, that's certainly fear-inducing, right? We see that examples in other parts of Scripture where, where there's a theophany, a, a visible manifestation of the glory of God or, or the sound of His voice. The initial response on the, response on the part of the hearer is often fear. And the Lord, likewise, in those circumstances, gives that same exhortation, fear not. But as I thought about this, and and given what happened in the previous chapter, um, he was in a battle against the kings who were seeking to take over Canaan. He prevailed, but maybe there's this enduring fear of enemies. He got his stuff back, he got Lot back, but maybe they're going to come back and, and attack again. They're posing a threat. Now, of course, those are possibilities. But I think from the context, the fear that he has, the fear that he has is that there is no heir. We see this in the text. It's the fear in Abram that the promise would not be fulfilled. Fear not, Abram, the Lord says. And I'm going to fill in this interpreting, I made the promise. I will fulfill it in my own time and in a way that I have determined don't fear. Don't worry. I can see that Abram would be feeling uncertain. How much time had elapsed since he first heard the promise. No air. No heir. Well, I've got Eliezer. Abram felt uncertain. But the Lord was gracious to comfort him. Now, I think about how often I've felt uncertain about fulfilling what God has called me to do whether that's in in ministry among you or just simple obedience i've been fearful of suffering i've been fearful of persecution and ridicule for my faith i've been fearful in myself of failing the lord or of failing my family or failing god's people i felt that uncertainty i felt that fear but you know what's true about me, and if you've felt any sort of fear or uncertainty, what's true for me is also true for you if you're in Christ this morning. We have a mediator in Jesus to help us. He is our great high priest. The, the book of Hebrews tells us, as high priest, he is able, Hebrews seven twenty five, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So get what Hebrews is saying. He saves us. Not halfway, not even almost all the way, but it says to the uttermost, the uttermost. Because that's true, Christ is there at the right hand of God the Father. He is advocating for you. He is advocating for me. God is gracious to comfort. The second aspect of the Lord's grace to Abram is his protection. We see the Lord says to Abram, I am your shield. Shield is another word for protector. I mean, we could think of a physical shield you'd hold in your hand, but what's it for? It's for your protection. So the Lord is saying, I'm your protector. Now, Abram had already experienced the Lord's protection. Even, even in the midst of his own weakness, to trust the Lord. I take it back in, uh, back when he was in Egypt, chapter twelve, he he there went to Egypt because there was a famine in Canaan, and seeking some, the, you know, the lush off the, the fruit of the, the Nile area, where they didn't need rain; the wa- the river watered everything. So he went there, but but he knew he'd be being confronted by a foreign king, who would not respect him. A king, like Pharaoh, would take what he wants. And so Abram comes up with this lie, and he gets Sarai to participate in it. Tell him, tell him you're my sister. They have the same father, but a different mother. Tell him you're my sister, and he lies. Well, even in that circumstance, the Lord delivered Abram and and released him from the grip of Pharaoh, prospered. Abram had experienced the Lord's protection. And going forward, nothing that Abram would ever experience, nothing, Nothing would be outside of the watchful and protective eye of the Lord. Even in difficult circumstances, there would be this invisible shield of protection around Abram. The Lord would not fail to fulfill His promise. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, that that is true for us as God's people today. Now, I have to say, though, that that protection does not mean that we will not suffer physically. Many here know that experience. That protection does not mean we will not sometimes or even oftentimes or even our whole lives suffer hardship or even lose our very lives. That protection doesn't mean that. But if indeed God has chosen you, if God has opened your spiritual eyes, if He has awakened your heart, you are in His eternal care, and you will be kept. You will be kept. You will be protected to enjoy His eternal promises. That's irrevocable. We have protection for our eternal souls in Christ, because He has overcome this world. Jesus explained this to this to His disciples. He was He was about to leave them, and He told them, "You're going to wobble." <laughs> Behold, John chapter 16, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it is come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. And it's an interesting thing that that Jesus says to his disciples, and he says this as he continues, I have said these things, that in me you may have peace. You're going to scatter from me, you're going to leave me alone, but I'm telling you so that you can have peace. And what does he say? In the world you will have tribulation. It's going to be hard. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's our confidence. That's the protection that we have. Jesus has overcome the world. So it cannot take our souls. It cannot separate us from the living God. If you are in the family of God today, you are secure forever. forever. Now, not everything that threatens us is external. It's not just the world. It's not just stuff outside of us. Sometimes the threat comes from within, does it not? And even when it does, we can be assured of spiritual protection as well. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth in his first letter, chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. See, that's a threat from within, isn't it? temptation. You're sitting there. You're thinking this thing. Okay, I could go this way or I could go that way. This is the righteous way. This is not. We've all been there. We've all been there. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Oh, brothers and sisters, live by that. When faced with that moral decision, you could say the hurtful thing. You could think the disgusting thought. No temptation. So what's the way of escape? What's the protection that the Lord has for us? We focus on Christ. Come back to the word. God knows your struggle. You need not be consumed. Turn to Christ in that moment. Well, the third aspect of God's grace to Abram is to provide, to provide. And to provide in abundance. He said to Abram, your reward shall be very great. Which is to say that the Lord would provide everything needed to ensure that his promise to Abram would be fulfilled. The promise of offspring. And the Lord says to him, it's not through his servant Eliezer, but there's a rightful heir, your son, from your body. Your very own son, verse 4, shall be your heir. Now it looked to Abram like, this is impossible. I'm old. Sarai's old. How's this going to be? God says, no, your very own son shall be your heir. And not only an heir, but a numerous, uncountable offspring. He tells them, come outside, look toward the heaven, and number the stars. Have you ever tried to do that? you ever tried? <laughs> and we know. I mean, they've got these great telescopes, right? We know. Beyond the, the, the few, we can see in the sky. There are billions and billions of... You know, just, Just try. Just try to number them. If you're able so shall your offspring be. If, if you've trusted Christ this morning, if you've put your faith in Him, you are the spiritual offspring of Abram. <laughs> We're here this morning in Christ as, as effectively the fulfillment of the Lord's promise to him. And what Abram knew about, knew to be true but the Lord's grace to him to provide is also true of us. Through Christ... Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, the passage there is dealing with with giving, being generous, but it applies to all of life. God is able to make all grace abound to you. The things that God wants from you are the things that He gives to you. Not some, But all grace, right? All grace abound. All sufficiency, all things, all times abound, overflow in every good work. Think about that. How great is that? Abram was promised offspring and that he would birth a a numerous people. Well, that's that's great. And we're here as a fulfillment of that. But honestly, if you think about this, I think the promises that we cling to are even better. And this is not to say that these aren't promises to Abram as well. But I want you to listen to how the Apostle Peter describes this. This is 2 Peter 1. His, referring to the Lord, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Through the knowledge of him, that's Christ, who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which, by the means of, these, um, Christ, by means of, which he has granted to us his very great and precious promises. What's that? The word of God that tells us about Christ. So that through them, we're talking about the word now, through them, you may become partakers. And if you know this verse, this is almost too good to be true. (laughs) that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. All things that pertain to life and godliness. This is, this is good news. This is God being amazingly, gloriously generous and gracious to us. And if you've trusted Christ, you, you already know the grace of God to comfort you. You already know the, the grace of God to protect and to provide God's promises to us through his word bring us into right fellowship with him. And that can never be taken away. The Lord is gracious. Second, I want to focus on this truth. Here's the second truth to observe. Abram is destitute. Abram is destitute. Now, if you've worked in a team setting uh, for your job, maybe you've taken something like the Enneagram. The elders did some of these things. Strengths Finder, DISC personality test. And if you've taken these things, you know that they've been designed to identify a person's mix of strengths so that you can leverage the best of each participant in the team, right? So that you can ultimately accomplish your collective goals. I think there's value in exercises like these in peer groups. And, and I, you know, thinking about it further, I, I think... There's benefit in understanding your own strengths in a somewhat objective way, and that can certainly be useful if you're interviewing for a new job. None of us would sit down and and say, well, I'm I'm quite useless at everything. (laughs) I don't know what I have to offer at all. But hey, love to to work here. It would be cool. (laughs) That's not going to work, right? But when we mere mortals come before Almighty God, presenting a resume of our strengths. Here's my Enneagram. Here's my disc. And <laughs> we don't do that, right? And in Abram's case, it's not as if God had cast some kind of vision, but somehow needed something from Abram to make it happen. Hey Abram, here's what I want to do, but I just, uh, you know, I'm kind of lacking something. What do you got for me? You got some strengths to bring to the, the plan? No, what did Abram have to offer anyway? Now back in chapter 12, the Lord, when the Lord first called Abram, he promised him, I will make of you a great nation. Now, Abram's no fool, right? He understands biology. He is destitute. He says to the Lord in verse 2, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I'm still childless. That word childless there is bare or stripped, but it's specifically destitute of children. And that's where I got the word destitute. He's destitute of children. See, what Abram knows is that he lacks before God what is necessary for God's promise to be fulfilled through him. He lacks it. He doesn't have it. But he also understands, and this is key, he also understands that the Lord is the only one who ensures that that promise is fulfilled. So he asks, what will you give me? <laughs> and, I, and I'm interpreting here, but I, I take from this that 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 he's saying, look, if I have to draw from my own resources, all of have got is Eliezer, and I think it's implied here. Abram's question to the Lord, it's not enough. It doesn't sound right. Still childless, Abram in himself. Now we're not we're not talking about Sarai. It's. Her problem too, but he's the focus. He's the patriarch, and and he's the one who's been told he'll have offspring, right? He didn't have what was needed for the promise of a nation from him to be fulfilled. Likewise, we have to think about ourselves. What do we have before the Lord? We, in ourselves, we lack what is needed to be welcomed into God's eternal family. What we have on our own is not enough. Listen, Scripture paints a very grim picture of what we are. This is what the Scripture says about us. Quoting from Romans 3, I'm going to pile on here, but the Scripture piles on. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. What Paul means is everyone, as it is written. Here we go. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Hey, thanks God, that's a great description. But it's true. doesn't feel good. Verse 22, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've heard that memory verse. But the previous verses describe how heinous it is. We're destitute. On our own, we're destitute. Abram was destitute. We are destitute. We have nothing. And fixing that problem, fixing that problem, our being destitute has everything to do with who asks the question. What will you give me? Whose whose lips is that question on? Now, the plastic gods of every false religion demand of their deceived worshipers, what will you give me? The fake gods ask that question. And, And so these people who follow these fake gods, who worship these fake gods, They seek to appease and bribe their gods with goods and deeds and extravagant sacrifices, even to the horror as as shown in in the Old Testament. The corrupt kings of Israel and Judah, they embraced the deadly error and went as far as to burn their very own sons as an offering for the false god Moloch. Moloch is saying, what are you going to give me? And those corrupt ideas have even infected the minds of so many who seek to worship the true God. Assuming they can buy God's favor. I, I can be good. I can do good. Well, maybe I can be more good than bad as long as I get to decide the scale, right? And thinking and behaving is as somehow God is impressed with services, our acts of charity, our religious activities. Listen, God needs nothing from us, and what could we give Him anyway? We're destitute. So here in our text, Abram serves as our example. He is destitute of children. When we come before the Lord, we must ask of him. He's not asking what we'll give to him. We must ask of him, what will you give me? I'm destitute. Now that's bad news, isn't it? But it is from this very place of humility that we, you and I, come to understand that Christ becomes what we are so that before God, we can become what He is. Let me say that again. Christ becomes what we are so that before God, we can become what He is. And that's the good news. I quote this often. I love it so much. For our sake, He made Him to be sin. Who knew no sin. This is referring to Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who is truly the righteousness of God? Well, that's Jesus. But in Christ, because he became sin, in him we become what he is. Jesus condescended to us, the destitute, the morally bankrupted. He put himself in our place precisely because we have nothing at all to offer up to God. And though he was sinless, Jesus took our unrighteousness. He took our unholiness. He took our corrupted state upon himself and suffered the condemnation that we deserve. That's, that's horrific for Jesus. But he did it in love for us. And that's good news. Was it good news that Abram was destitute? No, but it was good news that he understood it. And likewise, for us to embrace the good news of the gospel of Christ, each of us must come to the place where we understand that we are destitute before God. Bob quoted this in Sunday School. It bears repeating, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Abram was destitute of children. We are morally bankrupt, destitute on our own. Well, the last bit of good news, or the last aspect of this good news for Abram, which is good news for us, is this. This is the key point to take home. Faith is justifying. Faith is justifying. Well, what is faith? We talk about this a lot. We assume it, it's it's an important and essential Bible word, but really it's not exclusively a religious idea, is it? Every single day, everyone exercises faith. Yet faith is so terribly, terribly misunderstood. It is, uh, in the world around us. It's misunderstood, especially when it's thought of in a religious context. Uh, One of my favorite animated films is Prince of Egypt. But as is often the case in Hollywood they find a way to turn a biblical story about God's faithfulness and make it about human perseverance. Now, I'll still watch the movie cuz I like it. The songs are good. But an example I- in this movie is one of the songs called When You Believe. Now, it sounds it sounds good. It's, it's, it's beautiful sounding. But it misses the point of what genuine faith is. I'll quote you some of this. And this is th- I, I'm quoting this because this is how the world thinks of faith, right? There can be miracles when you believe. The hope is frail, it's hard to kill. Who knows what miracles you can achieve when you believe? Somehow you will. You will when you believe. Who knows what miracles you can achieve? Just just believe. And I think that's how the world thinks about faith. And maybe some people who profess to be Christians think about it that way too. What does it say in our text about Abram? It says that he believed. He, Abram, believed. Now, if the sentence stopped there, we'd have nothing of substance to learn here, would we? Abram believed. But Abram's faith was not some kind of power that he exercised. It was not a force within him, right? That's the error of uh, these prosperity gospel charlatans. They treat faith like it's a substance that you somehow must gin up within you. And if you got enough of it, you can get that promotion. If you believe, what kind of miracles can you do, right? If you believe you can get that, that free upgrade to first class on the plane, if you believe you can have that nice house or car, if you believe you can have your best life now, you know what I'm talking about. What a paltry little vision. What a waste of faith. Now back to Abram. We have finished the sentence, right? And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. See, Abram has Abram's faith has an object the Lord. His faith is in the Lord. And because he believed the Lord, he trusted the Lord. He had faith in the Lord. And why did he believe? Because the Lord is infinitely trustworthy, right? Infinitely. And when Abraham expressed that belief, felt that belief, somehow acknowledged that belief before the Lord, the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. Now listen, th- this simple fact is the best news ever. Ever. Now the Israelites who were about to receive their inheritance in the land of Canaan, they heard this truth but so quickly forgot it. Now these Jews in in Jesus' day, they revered Abram as their father, but they didn't seem to grasp the truth of Genesis 15, verse 6. There are people who've read the Bible cover to cover and maybe read it often, and they have lived their lives going to churches, yet ignorant of this essential but simple truth. Now I've shared this before, but I've We've canvassed around the neighborhood. Josh and I have done this with, with other brothers. We've asked people what they believe about God and Jesus. And it's amazing to me. We, we've met people who will acknowledge the historical truths about Jesus, that He's the Son of God, that He died on the cross and rose again. All oh, this is great. But then if you ask them to tell you why they think they would be welcomed into God's eternal kingdom, why they would go to heaven, the answer they give is because well, I've done some good in my life and I think it's more than the bad. Well, that's not good news at all. It's not. Why? Because to stand before God, yes, you must be righteous, but perfectly righteous. Now, just think about your days, the days in the last week. Think about your life. Have you ever had a day just one single day in your entire life where you behaved perfectly. And maybe you can check that box. But then, where your thoughts were perfectly pure, can you think of a single day? Now I didn't think so. The answer to Abram's destitution was simply believing God. Believing God. Now the crowds who, who followed Jesus around in the wilderness, hearing him teach, they were probably quite familiar with Genesis 15:6. And yet they asked Jesus. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? What kinds of things can I do to make me acceptable to God? Give me some task. Give me some thing to do. There must be something. Listen, Christian brothers and sisters, we we have to constantly come back to this essential gospel truth because if the Israelites forgot, if the Jews in Jesus' day forgot, we could forget too, and we must not. Jesus' answer, this is the work of God. Here it comes that you believe in him who is sent. Believe. God wants you the work to do. Trust me. Believe. Trust my son. Now we can know this truth, but we can forget to live by it. So this morning, I, I want you to leave <laughs> this morning with the best news ever, just ringing in your heads. So, I'm going to pile on some gospel truths that you can soak in. Speaking about Abram, Abraham, Paul says this in Romans What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, is something to boast about, but not before God. Nothing. He has nothing to boast of before God. But what does the scripture say? He quotes right from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified, made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, I'll stop there. Confess with your mouth isn't just saying words, but it's acknowledging who Jesus is, as Lord, who He is as the Son of God. It's it's all of that. If If you can own that truth, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, made righteous. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So that good news for Abram is good news for us. Faith in God and all that he has done to put your sin upon his son and accept his death in your place. That's what counts you and me righteous before God. And as long as I have breath, That's going to be my theme. That's what we're about as a church. So hold us to this, brothers and sisters. We must never, ever, ever neglect this good news. Faith is justifying, and that is the best news ever. It makes us perfectly acceptable to God in His sight because faith in Christ puts us in His Son. When you trust in Christ, when you believe what He has accomplished for you at the cross, it's as if you've been enveloped in Him. And when God sees you standing in His presence someday, He will not see the dirt and grime and, and bankruptcy of your life. He's going to see the glorious perfection of His Son in whom you stand. And so, brothers and sisters, there will, be never, there will never be a point in eternity going forward when we will not be standing in Christ alone. He is our righteousness. He is why we can be saved. And that grace that we look forward to, that marks us, this gift of God to count us righteous in God's sight, this gospel good news, it's not just like a ticket to get us into heaven. It's not just for the future, it's not merely an entrance card into the final kingdom. It is very real power in the present. And this is beautiful. See, that righteousness that we lack to be welcomed into God's eternal family, that righteousness that we see we lack in ourselves, because of this gospel, is formed in us now. And it is in increasing measure over time. Christ-imputed righteousness is the basis of, for our justification, the credited righteousness of Christ, our righteous standing before God, it is what Christ has accomplished that is our justification. But it's also the power, the power for our sanctification, being made into holy people. Bob and I are doubling up. He, he dealt with this passage in Sunday school, but I'm going to quote it again because this is the power of the gospel. Titus 2, 11, and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's what Christ has accomplished, right? The grace of God has appeared. We've seen Jesus. He's he's presented to us in the pages of Scripture, right? He's appeared, bringing salvation to all who trust in Him. And what does it do? Verse 12 Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the sin. That's the garbage in our lives. And this grace, this gospel, Trains us, it teaches us, it forms us, so that we can renounce the ungodliness. In our minds, when those thoughts come, we go, that's bad. And in the moments when we're when we're able to choose between right and wrong, we're more likely to choose what is right. Because this gospel gives us the power in that moment to think, wait a minute, that option, that choice, that's not in keeping with who I am in Jesus trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, you know what those are, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, now, not just the future, waiting for our blessed hope. That is to say, the return of Jesus, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is good news. That is our hope this morning. So the good news for Abram, that's good news for us too. And what we learn is that the immeasurable grace of God is there to comfort us, to protect us, and to provide for us. And the fact that apart from Christ himself, you and I are destitute before God, but the answer to that, we can be counted righteous in God's sight, and to do so you simply must believe. Put your faith in Jesus. We live by faith in him alone. I pray that that's your testimony this morning. And as you leave this room today, my prayer for you is that you would just soak in this gospel truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we always need this good news and we never want to forget this good news. And if we think about ourselves honestly and your word confronts us to do so, everything that we need before you comes from you in the first place. And so, Father, we, we humble ourselves before you and we receive, we receive what you've given to us in your son, the forgiveness, the righteousness that comes from, by faith in him. And Lord, we pray that in increasing measure we will delight in this truth May it serve, may this gospel truth serve to to guide us in every single decision we make, every action we take with our lives, our interactions with friends and family and, and those who hate us. Father, may it be informed by this gospel truth. Teach us in increasing measure to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And we pray it in his name. Amen.